Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 31. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always, every week is child prodigy Mitchell Davis. What's up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm... Uh, just playing away uh, on the. What am I playing? Uh, I'm a violinist or or a drummer. <laughs> I heard so, your son on drums earlier. He sounded like a prodigy to me. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that was Levi. Yeah, he's he's gonna be a monster. <laughs> yeah. What's going on, man? Uh, not much. It's good to be back after a month off. Um, of teaching in, in upstate New York. And I know you sort of took a vacation to Puerto Rico, which I saw yep. the pictures. It looked really cool. Yeah, Puerto Rico is uh, slowly becoming a, a favorite of mine. Uh, definitely had, had fun doing that. Uh, time away uh, from the show. It's, it's been a while, but yeah, this definitely had, had some good time, uh, you know, being off work on vacation and here and there. And, and uh, obviously you were... You were doing some other things yourself. Uh, I'm teaching in New York, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, it was a cool experience. But uh, yeah, it's great. It's great to be back and uh, uh, great to be sort of doing the show again. Oh yeah. And uh, I know we've had people on our various networks uh, ask when we were coming back, and I know one person was kind of worried that we stopped, but we haven't stopped. Uh, we just took a break, so uh, we're back, and we're back with our third special guest on the show. And uh, uh, we're going to uh, introduce him right now and say hi. What's up, Brian Clark? Hey, how is everybody? Great. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Brian uh, Brian is uh, uh, lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and is a, a fantastic musician and composer and uh, producer and teacher and uh, uh, you know, just a lover of music, just like Mitch and I. And uh, yeah, I wanted to invite you on the show to just come hang with us and and talk about music. I'm excited. I'm honored to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, cool. awesome, awesome. And um, just um, for the for the people out there, can you just tell them a little bit about yourself and and what you do down in Nashville? Sure. Um, from Dallas originally, relocated to um, to to Nashville about seven and a half years ago uh, via Los Angeles, uh, where I finished up my doctorate in jazz guitar, classical composition, and music law. And your your founding or your co-founder of your podcast, Mr. Anthony Joseph Landman, you and I went to school together for. Um, a wonderful period uh, at University of Texas in Austin where I was working on my master's. And mm-hmm. uh, that's where we met. Uh, so I, I've been here for seven years, uh, do a lot of TV and film work. I was one of the principal writers on um, 
America's Next Top Model, Project Runway. I've done a lot of shows with Food Channel, History Network, ESPN, Fox, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I'm, uh, I got my own record label here in Nashville called Rainfeather Records, where we our mission is to make the world a better place through the power of music. And so we specialize in music that gently leads people towards a, a more positive alternative than the than a lot of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, <laughs> right you know, not. And and uh, not there's anything wrong with that. It's not a value judgment. It's just that uh, there, we get a, we get a lot of that in the marketplace, and it's oh, nice yeah. to, to have a little bit of a balancing of the scales. Um, but it's uh, it's not a CCM label. It's not the contemporary Christian rehash stuff that sounds you know really bad like really bad pop. Um, so uh, we've got a new record out. Uh, it's called Southern Intermission, and um, I teach at Vanderbilt and at Belmont University in the schools of music here in Nashville, and just finished uh, a new uh, guitar lesson for Guitar Player Magazine that'll be coming out in November. So that's the 411. Yeah, awesome. And you've also cool. done a lot of the um, Pickin' On series, right, with your bluegrass group. Yeah, we started a bluegrass group on a whim, and we got signed to a label, and and uh, we've done uh, four releases. In fact, we're working on our new release now, which is going to be uh, a bluegrass tribute to Lady Gaga, and uh, we've already <laughs> we've already done the tracking for that, so uh, it's moving along. It's it's one of those projects we're going to get finished. It should be out in uh, mid October, and the name of that band is called Honey Wagon. Cool, cool. So yeah, Brian, uh, thanks for coming on. We know obviously you're a, a busy dude, but um, yeah, it's great to have you on, man. Um, and uh, this week on the show, we're going to be talking about, of course, five albums again from Tom Moon's book, 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die. Uh, we're going to start with Solomon Burke, his album Don't Give Up On Me. Uh, then we're going to move on to Burning Spear, their album Marcus Garvey. Then R.L. Burnside, When I uh, Wish I Was in Heaven Sitting Down. Uh, then Kate Bush, The Kick Inside. And finally, uh, William Byrd, Harpsichord Music, uh, played by Gustav Lanhart. Um, so, yeah, let's start with Solomon Burke. And uh, I, I was totally unfamiliar. This is another uh, artist that I was totally unfamiliar with. I uh, did not know Solomon's Burke. Uh, Solomon Burke's music before this and uh, I know that I probably should have um, I, I know he was like uh, you know one of the pioneers of soul in the 60s and um, and gospel and I just uh, you know as I've said on the show many times you know uh, when I was a teenager I was I was too into heavy metal and this just like wasn't part of my universe you know um, but I don't know. Had you guys heard of Solomon Burke before? Yes. Yeah, I had. Yeah, I, I had, and but but not to the extent that I thought I did. Uh, once I started to look at his career and and realize how long his career had had stretched back, there was quite a bit of music of his that I didn't know, which was actually fun to get into. I mean. Uh, I, I knew a few of his songs, but but not like I I thought I did. I mean, he had just an amazing long career um, before he. Uh, I think he passed in 2010, and um, you know he was a he was a soul musician as 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 well as gospel music. I mean, you know he um, he was just kind of one of those guys that 
that had this this really great voice that you know could could do soul gospel even really like blues music as well and um i i think uh the the thing with this album is it's kind of one of those um one of those records where someone you know like Solomon Burke who who's had just a long career but quite a lot of people may not have known about him were were kind of you know had an opportunity to be reintroduced by you know this record to him um in a, in a cool way where you know some really good people are on this record you know playing and writing um Daniel Lenoir and uh Tom Waits and you know some other people and I mean it, it's just it's I, I don't want to call it a comeback record you know because it, it really isn't but it's kind of like one of those records uh sort of like when when Bonnie Raitt did Nick of Time you know Bonnie Raitt had been around forever and you know some people knew of her but a lot of people really didn't and and then all of a sudden this record comes out you know it's like you know say like, you know Who's this lady? Where she's been? And she's like, you know, I've been here all, all this time. And the same thing with him, you know. I mean, he'd been around for years and years, but you know, this is one of those records where it's like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm still around. I'm still viable, and, and here I go. You know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that Mitchell on uh, with Bonnie. I I had the honor of uh, of hanging out with her and. Um, and meeting her and got to talk, have dinner with her and, and Ed Cherney, who was the producer on that album and the engineer who now does Rolling Stone. He's done everybody. But um, but I asked Bonnie specifically, when we got to talking about that album, and she said that when they turned it into the label, they almost didn't release it. Wow. Bec- because they didn't know what to do with it. And they they looked at her and said what is this this is pop crossover stuff you're a blues artist and they they absolutely were hung it was a hung jury for a long time and she really went in and leveraged her past catalog in the sense of saying i'm bonnie Raitt. i've done all these records this has to be released and they put it out and she went six grammys yeah <laughs> and that's something <laughs> tells you tells you a lot about the music industry <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> I liked this album. Um, I didn't. I wasn't aware of this album. I know Solomon Burke from the early days. You know, kind of like I always equate him with the Stax singers, even though he wasn't one. But that he's coming out of that old like Otis Redding Memphis sound, mm-hmm. and you know the whole Lieber and Stoller and all that great uh, type of music that was really coming out of Memphis in the '60s and. Um, really very dynamic performer and i really liked i really liked the uh, the selections of it as well that that uh, they they chose especially diamond in your mind i mean that that yeah. tune and the production on it with lanois i think lanois produced that yeah um but I, that album uh sounds great but that song in particular it could be a tom Waits song in a oh, yeah. snap yeah just, it it yeah, sounds like yeah. almost like he's channeling not that Tom Waits is dead, but like he's channeling Tom Waits as he sings that song. I mean, I I hear and I hear Tom Waits. You, you're right, you're definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was written by Tom Waits, and we'll we'll get to that song. The first one we're going to listen to is "Don't Give Up on Me," and um, uh, yeah. Speaking of child prodigies, you know, there's there's a couple child prodigies on the show that 
and Solomon Burke is one. Kate Bush is the other one. Um, and Solomon was like, uh, not not so much a musical prodigy, but people referred to him as like a preacher prodigy. Mm. And they said he would get up there and at seven years old um, at his uh, grandmother's church and uh, and preach and and sermonize. And uh, apparently he was so dynamic that he would get you know just everybody you know. Uh, so wrapped up and so enthralled with his delivery at seven, seven years old. Wow! Um, he would he would write his own sermons and he would you know get up every Sunday and <laughs> you know people call him a prodigy and all this kind of stuff. Um, seven years old, and that's man. yeah, that's how we started and um, sort of I guess performing, you know, because that that's a, a performance in itself, you know. Oh yeah, um, and. Uh, he, of course, you know, he had his demons too, you know, that he dealt with, he dealt with, um, uh, sort of food and weight a lot during his life. And, um, I read that this song don't give up on me is like a sort of like a self affirmation type track. You know, it's like, don't give up on yourself, you know, no matter what stuff you got to deal with, you know, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. Um, what did you guys think of this track? Pretty much the, the, the same, uh, kind of conclusion you came up to where it's um the adversity obviously that that you know people will go through in life you know i mean sometimes you know you you're gonna go through some really tough stuff i mean where it just seems like you know you're done and and this is one of those songs that kind of you know calls out to you know basically never give up you know no matter what it looks like i mean and with him um, you know, I've, I've heard Solomon Burke, uh, or I actually, actually read that people call him like the Muhammad Ali of, of soul where, you know, he was just one of those guys that looked like he'd be down and out and then come back, you know, with, you know, uh, uh just a storm of, of good music. And, you know, I, I think in this song, he's, he's kind of, you know, relating that to his own career and his personal life, you know, to where, you know, no matter what it looks like, you know. Hey, don't, don't give up on me, guys. I'm 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 still gonna be here. I'm still gonna be doing my thing, you know, no matter what it looks like, you know. And um, you know, he definitely, like you said, he he definitely had some ups and downs, uh, you know, especially in his in his personal life and his and his career, you know, where it, it seemed like his music, you know, would be in demand and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And um, you know, he he kind of, you know, just kind of rolled with the punches, you know, where, you know, he just did a lot of things in life to survive. I think uh, also, you know, you talked about him being a minister. If I read correctly, I want to say that he had a uh, uh, a business where he was into, uh, I guess, funerals, where it was like a, he had like a That's mortuary. Right. That's right. He had several mortuaries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was something, too. <laughs> I was like, you know, like, you know, who knew that? I, I I didn't know that about him until I started reading more about him. I was like, well, that's that's definitely a way to survive. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's something eventually everybody obviously is going to need. Um, but uh, he, he was just one of those guys that he was going to make it work, you know, no matter what it was. And like I said, his, his career and, and, and his singing career or business or his personal life, you know? And uh, I think the guy, uh, he had several marriages. Looks like he was married you know, four times. Uh, Dude, which, he, uh, he fathered his first child at 14. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 
And, I, and, and obviously, you know, back in the day, that was not so uncommon. Yeah, where, that's true. Where people had kids, you know, at very young age. Um, looks like he uh, he had quite a few children. Uh, wow. 21. Woo, he's up at Bach level. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's something else. Uh, that's ugh, Yeah, wow. he was he was as prodigious as as JS Bach. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So, and I mean just um, you know, to to go through, you know, I guess obviously, you know, having to deal with, you know, that kind of thing and and then like you said his his health issues where he he'd gotten to be he was a pretty big guy, you know, pretty much throughout his life. Uh looked like he uh he kind of was in between three and four hundred pounds and, and on top of that was just kinda, you know, you know, tall guy too. Uh it looked like. So I mean that that's not easy either where you just you having to deal with that on and off. Yeah. And I mean I'm sure he had he just had like a, a number of struggles, you know. And and to have a song like this where you know, you you've experienced, you know, the good and the bad and, and you know, had to, you know, rely on, you know, things that maybe you can't see, you know, when you're sort of in a storm, I guess. This is like his way of saying, hey, you know, I, I know it looks bad, you know, but, you know, again, don't give up on me, guys. I'm 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 going to be OK. You know, I'm I'm sure he. He believed that you know all, all the way to the very end, you know that he could he could overcome whatever it was. You know, I I hear that in his in this song, you know, in his voice where where he's singing. Um, and I mean that this is another also too another record that 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 comes to my mind is uh the last record that that Warren Zevon did um, before he he passed because uh, apparently when he was doing the record he was sort of ill and. Um, it's kind of like one of those, one of those all-encompassing. This is like, and I, I mean, not that he, you know, thought it was like his maybe his last record or anything, but it was like one of those, those statement records where you know I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, kind of put my life into, you know, this one record, you know, yeah, yeah. As, as or as much as I can, and I, and I hear that in this song as well too, you know, where it's it's sort of like a, you know, a confessional of, of things that he's been through and things that he's had to overcome, so to speak. Yeah. Well, why don't we just check this out, this first track, just to, um, to, to hear some uh, Solomon. And uh, this is uh, Don't Give Up On Me by Solomon Burke. <laughs> If I don't make the grade If your expectations aren't met in me today There's always tomorrow Or tomorrow night Hang in there baby Sooner or later I know I'll get it right Please don't give up on me Oh, please don't give up on me I know it's late Late in the game But my fear 
my true feelings haven't changed here in my heart. heard Don't Give Up On Me by Solomon Burke and we're going to move on to his song Diamond In Your Mind written by Tom Waits um, it, this is a, I mean this is a real standout track for me um, what do you guys think of this Diamond In Your Mind man I love it um, I'm a huge Tom Waits fan and, and it, it just goes to show that a, a great song can really be translated to almost any type of singer and this is living proof of that. I think it's interesting that Solomon chose this track as well, and I thought they did a nice production of it, too, to sort of keep it in that original style that Tom is so well-known for. I, I didn't... The sad thing about, you know, doing some of these records is that you don't get the liner notes anymore. And, I know, yeah. And so I, they, don't, they just list the track. And so when I said, oh, this could be a Tom Waits song really quickly, you know, it's funny that it is a Tom Waits song. So, oh, yeah. well, that makes total sense. <laughs> but uh, I, I really like it. Um, and just to, just to kind of go back at the, at the end, and, and I'm sure, you know, the people that have listened to the song, I mean, that last minute of Don't Give Up On Me is just, if you don't get a little teary-eyed hearing that, it's, it's powerful. But this song is like that as well. And I love the imagery that Waits always brings to his, uh, his songwriting. I, I think he has the, the typical type of uh, proverbial tone that Dylan had in his best songs. Uh, and, and this is one of those great examples of it. And it's a, it's an optimistic song that fits the tone of the record. So I think it was a great track to add onto this record. Yeah, I, I agree. Just, um, like you said, it, it, it's got Tom Waits, you know, his, his DNA is all, all throughout this song. And, you know, like you said, the, the style and the delivery of, of the vocal, the the pace and the arrangement of the song, you know, it, it it was it was really just a really good sort of I guess um, collaboration between you know two really great artists and uh, like you said, Tom Waits is just one of those guys. I, I love him. Um, he just has a such a great feel for a, a variety of musics and, and a way to approach them in a way that, you know, 
is is unique to what he does. And and to have uh, somebody like Solomon Burke, you know, take on one of one of his songs and it, for it to come out like this was was really fun. I mean, um, I, I'm sure, you know, while while they were in the studio and doing this, I mean, it was just like magic um, to have sort of like the the two generations, you know, influencing each other and kind of kind of, you know, like I said, collaborating just just a really good song, like you said, just a, a positive song, you know, to where, you know, no matter what stage of life that you're in, um, you know, keeping that 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 positive sense, that 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 higher sense of of hope and, and, and promise going, you know, which is not not always easy, obviously, especially, you know, in today's age where you you have so many people going through whatever. I mean, I, I don't have a job or my health is bad or or both, you know, and just other different issues uh, to keep that sort of diamond in your mind, so to speak. Um, you know, that that's not always easy, but but you really have to do it. I mean, you really have to keep going, not give up, not stop. And I mean, it's it's a great sort of inspirational testament to come from from Solomon Burke, so to speak, and in this way, uh, sort of delivered, I guess, from from a Tom Waits perspective. Um, just a really, like you said, a really great song. Might, might add one small interjection, one little sidebar. Yeah. You know, this record was like a, a great comeback record for Solomon in in the sense of uh, what it meant to him as a as a personal basis, and it always makes me think of of one of my all-time favorite artists, which is Curtis Mayfield. And Curtis, to me, has has one. This is just like I said, it's a sidebar, but it just reminds me of. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but Curtis was paralyzed. Uh, in 1990, he was doing a oh, show yeah. in New York, and it was actually in Brooklyn, if I remember correctly. And he, uh, lighting equipment from the trusses fell on him and paralyzed, made him a quadriplegic. Yeah, and he, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. He did, he did his last album called New World Order. Oh yeah. He, he sang it line by line, laying on his back because the, he could only do one line at a time. That's how, that's how much it took him to put this record together and he still made this record. And if you want to see a testament of somebody who has always had a positive message with the impressions and all the way through, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, black power and, and the social rights and, I mean, everything else that started to come out and he was a catalyst for it. I mean, you go through the Superfly days and, you know, Sweet Exorcist and all these great Curtis Mayfield records. I mean, that album, man, when you hear him sing, it's like, it's like every time he opens his mouth, you just start crying because it's just so, it's such a moving record. Yeah, and that, 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 I don't that know record. anybody that's had that. <laughs> Yeah, you know. that record has a song on it called "Here But I'm Gone." Uh, the the New World Order record that you're talking mm -hmm. about, that is that's one of my favorite Curtis Mayfield songs. Because I mean that that album, that whole album is really good. But that song in particular, I mean it it has some really great guitar work from Curtis, where it's it, it's it's not his usual style of playing, and then it's just one of those songs where lyrically it. It's 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 hard and it's it's a great testimonial where, you know, you have somebody who's gotten to a place in life where it, things are so messed up and and the lyrics are like, you know, 
uh, you know, how did I get so far gone and where I where do I belong and where the hell did I ever go wrong? I mean, just, you know, just some crushing lyrics. Like you said that, you know, Curtis Mayfield is a great example of of, of also like a uh, an artist who kind of came to a point where they make that record, you know, and it's it's like a great testament of, of all that they've gone through. And like you said, you know, he at that point, he's he's in a wheelchair. He's paralyzed. Um, I remember on BET a few years back, uh, he did an interview with Donnie Simpson where, you know, he was just talking about how, you know, he really has nothing to be upset about at, at the point of where he is. He's still alive. He can still basically perform and play his guitar, not as much as he used to. And, and him and Donnie, they're both crying, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I could be upset and I could be angry, but why? You know, I've had a really good life up to this point. And I mean, being in a wheelchair is not, you know, what I want, but I still have to keep going. You know, Curtis had that diamond in the mind, too, so to speak, you know, definitely. And I mean, that that's a pretty good comparison to to bring up. I, I like I said, I, I definitely love that record, too. That That's a great record. He's got so many good ones. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. I'll have to check it out because I don't know that record. Um, I didn't know any any of that about Curtis Mayfield. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah, man. It, and, and and I'll just give you some of my favorites just to, just to, as a summary statement of my favorite discography as, as Curtis on his own. But the first one, Curtis, which came out in 70, and then Roots came out in 71. I love Sweet Exorcist, which was uh, 74, and I'm just I'm going through my vinyls in my mind. And then, uh, <laughs> but th- those are some of the uh, some of my all time favorite, you know, Curtis records. And and for for those of you who may not know, Curtis, of, of course, he was with the Impressions that did People Get Ready, which has been covered many many times. And then of course, Where a Winner, which is probably one of the greatest civil rights songs of all time, and it's, it's actually one of the most positive songs um, since we're on this positive theme. And um, and the new world, new world order is just amazing. So yeah. anyway, that's those are my those are my Curtis. Awesome, dude! You're gonna have to come. I'm, I'm, you're gonna have to come back on the show when we're actually talking about Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> yeah, he's you know he's coming. I'm, I'm pretty you know Superflies is definitely in the book. I mean that's yeah that's that'll be that'll oh. be later. <laughs> dude, you know what? Superfly is not the album that's in this book. It's not. I thought it was. No, the album why. that's in this book is There's No Place Like America Today. Uh, yeah, that's a cool record. That's a cool record. Hmm. I like Sweet Exorcist better, but but that's that's a cool record. Yeah, Billy Jack, Billy Jack's on that record. It's cool. Okay, well, anyway, getting back to Solomon Burke, um, let's go ahead and play um, this track, Diamond in Your Mind. Um, unless you guys have anything else to add. Oh no. All right. Yeah, let's check it out. This this great track written by Tom Waits uh, and performed. Um, really amazingly by Solomon Burke. This is uh, Diamond in Your Mind. I shook the hand of the president and the Pope in Rome. I've been to parties where I've had to be flown. They said everything was sacred. Nothing was profane. And money was something that you throw off the back of trains. Oh, always keep a dime in your mind. You got to always keep a dime in your mind. 
Steve die in your mind Steam of the gravy With little fried pearls Floating like a necklace On a beautiful girl Jonah says thanks To the food and the land And also ever grateful For God's almighty hand Diamond in Your Mind by Solomon Burke and we're going to move on to our second album Burning Spear their album Marcus Garvey released in 1975 and uh, Burning Spear is really one guy um, uh, named Winston Rodney Um, uh, this is you know uh, Jamaican reggae um, heavily steeped in Rastafari movement and uh Marcus Garvey, apparently, I didn't know anything about Marcus Garvey before I uh, started researching this album, but uh, he was a turn-of-the-century Jamaican, uh, you know, civil rights activist uh, that the Rastafari movement have basically identified this guy as as a prophet, even though Marcus Garvey himself apparently never identified with the Rastafari movement himself. they regard this guy as a prophet uh, of their religion. And um, uh, Marcus Garvey, I guess, you know, was little known um, by the 1970s. And this really created a big resurgence in um, just awareness of Marcus Garvey and what he did. Um, I don't know. What do you guys, what, what are your impressions of this album well, in general? Mar- the, the one thing that I correlate with Marcus Garvey was the Back to Africa movement, where Marcus Garvey felt that black people, and especially in, in the United States and, and a lot of the Caribbean islands, you know, uh, Jamaica, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, whatever, you know, when we were brought to these nations as slaves, you know, against our will, you know, we're stripped of everything. And basically needed to return to Africa to restore, you know, as black people, our true selves, our true names, our true identities. And and really that that's what I think to uh, Marcus's Marcus Garvey's legacy is is the back to Africa movement. Not necessarily Rastafarianism, which which was definitely inspired inspired by 
uh, Marcus Garvey's teachings. You know, that, I think, you know, the, the roster movement leans more to, to Haile Selassie, um, you know, who, you know, had basically had, you know, Jamaica in, in revolution against, you know, colonization. Um, also, uh, another person who was really heavily influenced by Marcus Garvey's teachings uh, in his life was Malcolm X, uh, whose, whose father was, a, was apparently like a follower, like literally of, of Marcus Garvey. Um, so, I mean, that kind of gives you, I, I think, more of a, a turn on on where he was. And I think with with Burning Spear and, and their correlation, they they wanted to kind of remind, you know, black people, especially where we had come from and, and trying not to make, you know, a lot of the same mistakes and fall into the same trappings uh, that that black people had been in before especially slavery and not necessarily in a sense to where it's like you know in shackles and, and colonialized slavery but mental slavery in this case um where where people don't know their own history don't know you know their own background you know have names that are of you know their ancestors were given to them by their slave owners that's another thing where you know we were talking about you know, Puerto Rico before we started recording. I did not know the history of slavery there, um, where it, it ran very deep um, and and dark, as a matter of fact. It, it's, it's, slavery is one of those things that obviously comes up on the, on this album. And, it, and it's it's a tough subject, really, when you get into the true history of of slavery throughout this world. It's 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 hard to tell. It's It's hard to look back at it. I mean, you, you you do it just to know, but it, it's it at times it's such a cruel and brutal history. Um, I mean, I I liken it to. I mean, it, it's not really the same thing as as the Holocaust with with the Nazis, but it, it's it's pretty close. I mean, it, it's it's a brutality where people were not considered people, and and it's definitely visited on this album, you know, um, where they, they basically want people to know, you know, that history. And I'm, I'm sure mainly so it does not repeat itself in any form or fashion. Um, right. Basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, uh, do you have, well, I, I mean, I can speak more to the production side and the musical side of it because I, I totally agree with everything that Mitchell just said. Um, but I'm not qualified to give an opinion on that. Um, you know, in my mind, I mean, that's that's something that is is, uh, is sacrosanct, and I think it's it's a necessary part of uh, of the consciousness, and it needs to stay in the consciousness and. You know, it happens. I think about this, though, when I think about that. It, it would be interesting, you know, like when we study ancient Egypt, right? Because slavery has been around for basically as long as one person could exert their will over another. You know what I mean? And it's interesting. I would love to see, because every time we study ancient Egypt, right, we look at the pyramids, you look at the, the architecture, you look at the hieroglyphics, you look at everything else. But what I never get, and I'm sure if there's anyone who is a historian and an archaeologist that could come in and give us some reference, I would welcome that. I would love to see if there was any remnants 
of the slave class in ancient Egypt that is left that we could get an idea of what it was like to be a slave in Egypt. I think that that would be really interesting. It's totally off the subject, I know, but, uh, but somewhat related in the sense of the, the concept. But, yeah. um, but you know what I mean? It's like we just look at the, the pretty side of it, and there was obviously right. an ugly right. side to it too. I mean, that's who right. built those pyramids, right. you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, and yeah. I think that's that's why you know songs like this are important. Things like this are important. Things that uh, that just serve as a reminder to people, and th- these things that just tell us to not forget, you know. And really, there's there's not too many lyrics in this song. I mean, basically, you know, they just say, "Do you remember the days of slavery?" You know, and it's it's sort of like one of these things, like uh, uh, a a thing that we need to be constantly reminded of you know dark times and dark things that people have done and and things that we shouldn't forget you know that people have done you know uh, and like yeah, you said yeah. you know with the ancient with the ancient egyptians you know that's a that's a great point you know cuz like um did they have you know did the the egyptian slaves have a culture you know did they have an outlet um in later years you know to say you know hey everybody do you remember these days of slavery you know when we were all slaves and it, or was it just, you know, suppressed and everybody forgot, you know? Um, so, yeah, but that's a good and that's a good point, because trust me that it, it's it's a thing where people, a lot of people, especially they want to forget. They don't want to remember right, the days right. of slavery. But really, in, in, in a lot of ways, you, you, you have to know you have to know the the true history of, of the way things are, because it it, it just kind of gives a a sort of a you know, brevity to, to things even now that, that go on. And, um, you know, is it, is it fun to remember like really what was going on? No, you know, but to know the truth about how things have come to be, you know, like you said, the, the pyramids, uh, the, the things that, that went into building those pyramids. I mean, I mean, it was backbreaking, you know, brutal labor, where you know when people weren't able to work you know they were they were put down and then someone else would put in their place to move on on you know and and it was just one of those things where and and slavery the the history of slavery too you know people think about the so-called slave masters as as mostly being european that's not always the case i mean there were quite a few people who owned slaves that were black and that were African, you know, that's something that I, I had to find out myself. And, and again, it goes into the truth about what slavery was and the history of, you know, slavery, because there are there are a lot of, you know, black Africans who were very, very affluent, who had money and, and had slaves, you know, and it was just a thing that that just happened. It wasn't even like a a. a thing of why are we doing this it's just like we need to do this and you know this song is you know it's kind of like done in a chant style where like you said there's not a whole lot of words to it but it's it's sort of like a repetition you know style of singing and i think it's just one of those things where you know they want to you know put it in your mind you know through through song to to sort of remember, you know, in a sense to where this is where we have come from 
you know, and then this is what we were, you know, at yeah. one time or another yeah. as a collective, so to speak. I just want to say um, it's really cool. I like the song. I love this old uh, Kingston sound, you know, with um, with the Bucket Brigade delays and with all of the um, the production values of it. I mean, this is to me, this is classic Jamaican reggae from the time. Mm-hmm. And if anything ever makes wants you to just, for, at least for me as a guitar player, just to go, oh, you know, I'm not going to play guitar for a while. I'm just going to take up the bass. Man, this is a great record because the bass lines in reggae are where all awesome. the action is at. Oh, yeah. 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 It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I listen to this track, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, when I listen to this track, you know, I do hear an a, a kinship with... Um, the juju that we uh, listened to in an earlier podcast, you know, of uh, King Sunny Ade. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, I mean, they're not the same, exactly the same, but there is a kinship there, you know, with the, with the guitars and especially, Brian, you mentioned the bass lines and being the real backbone, uh, you know, of the music. Uh, there's definitely a kinship there between the two genres. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, that's just an aside, but I just, you know, uh, that's just what I heard when I listened to it. But, um, yeah. 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 Do you guys want to just, uh, hear the first one, Slavery Days? Sure thing. Roll it, man. <laughs> All right, man. Everything be crisp, man. Uh, we're going to listen to Burning Spear, Slavery Days. Slavery Days, A Burning Spear. We're going to move on to their song Red, Gold, and Green, which I I think refers to the Jamaican flag. I don't know. Both, yeah. It's the the colors are representative also of um, 
things that that uh, going back to the whole slavery and colonization thing, um, things that that the slaves and black people had to go through. Um, the the red is for the blood that was spilled. The gold is is like for the the gold that was stolen, and the, I think the uh, the black and green. I I, I want to say one is Africa, one is a black man. I think I don't quote me, but I that but the, there's another song that that another reggae group, Steel Pulse, do um, where they they lay that out. It's it's called Rally Around the Flag, and it's um you know. Green for the land, Africa. Yellow for the gold that they stole. Uh, you know, blood for, blood that flowed like a river. Uh, basically, that's kind of how that lays out, and I, I think that's that's what they're they're leaning on to. That there's a very steep tradition in how that that flag has come together. I mean, in the colors, and I I want to say I, I don't I, I don't think red is is red in the flag. No, I think red's in the flag. It's not but, only just because I just remember seeing. You know the the uh, the parade of nations on on uh, the Olympics that are going on now. And, oh yeah, and Usain Bolt too. And yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but, no uh, red. It's just black, green, and gold. Yeah, but that's that's part of where that that's part of where that comes from. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure um, the inspiration for for the the colors and the flag. Um, and I you know I, I could be wrong. You know somebody you know. They know better. Please yeah. correct me. Well, I mean, if, if it's a reference to the flag and uh, you're replacing black with red, right there would make a pretty powerful statement. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, uh, just like you were saying, Brian, I mean, I think this is just another uh, just awesome classic reggae tune, you know, from that from that period. Um yeah, it's just a great song. I, I don't know. I mean, do you guys have anything to say about Red, Gold, and Green? I uh, love the bass line on this track. I love the groove on it. Um, I think it's I think it's a really cool track. And just in general, I think it's just so representative of this period of reggae. Um, one, two, two little asides, um, sidebars again. Um, uh, do you guys do this? I mean, when you're talking about it on your past podcast, oh yeah, kind of go off. oh yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, I just didn't want to feel like, oh no, I'm steering the ship in a wrong direction. Um, I don't know. There's there's two things. There's a great if you read Keith Richards' autobiographical uh, book. I can't remember what it's called, um, but I, I I haven't read it. But I know the attorney that used to represent them, and um, and that's the thing that they would always say in the '70s when they were in trouble. They'd be like, "Get Carter." get Carter. And, and Carter is, uh, he's actually a friend of our family. Um, and he was telling me about this time where Keith Richards had a palatial place in Jamaica. Um, it was like a palace pr pretty much, but Keith was never there. And he used to pay Carter to go down and essentially take care of this. And he paid him a lot of money. Carter's a lawyer, right? And, but he would pay him a lot of money to go down there and basically just take care of his Jamaican home. Well, guess what? Peter Tosh decided that it was his house and literally moved in with a armed thug squad and <laughs> and took over Keith Richards' house. Oh wow. And they and and they literally confronted them. 
And if, if uh, one of the ladies who was actually going to get the police, she had a flat tire, but she made it in the nick of time. But Carter's like, I've never been that close to death in my life because these guys had machetes and machine guns. And we were just you know there trying to get them out of Keith Richards' house. So it's a great story if you ever, but it's, it's in the book apparently from what he's told me. So, um, so, wow. so there's, there's that. And then this is another one, but if you guys heard the new Dr. John record, no, no lockdown dudes, I have to say <laughs> it is one of my favorite records that I've heard in years. I love this record and it is, it's got this, it's got this vibe all over, but, um, it's, it is it's probably one of the best records uh, that Dr. John's ever made. And it's done from um, Dan Arybach from Black Keys and a guys from the Dap Kings. They recorded it here in Nashville. But if you like this reggae style, but you want to hear something that's got reggae meets New Orleans, you need to check this record out. It's called Lockdown. It's amazing. Okay. Awesome. Good. Awesome. Yeah, we'll check that out. Yeah, yeah, and, and feel free, you know, that's what we do. I mean, we just talk about the music and we just talk about whatever comes to our mind. So don't, yeah, don't don't feel bad about going on asides. So yeah, we, <laughs> feel we, free. we talk music. We talk music all the time. We Trust me, we, we will get sidetracked in a way that it's, it's, it's crazy at times. <laughs> so. And, you know, sometimes we've gotten a few complaints that sometimes we've uh, rambled on. But you know what? It's my podcast. So deal with it. <laughs> go, um, you know, go, going back to this album, uh, uh, talking about the actual music and the sound of it, I, I think which a lot of reggae artists would do, uh, they made a second version of this record that is all in dub, where mm. the the vocal tracks drop in and out, and then the music. There's more of an emphasis on the, like you said, the bass lines and. And the the percussion and organ sounds and uh, you know I, I have not heard the dub version of this album but I would love to hear it I imagine it's it's probably really really good they put all kinds of echo and distortion onto the track also and um, yeah it's on Spotify um, if you want to check that out the, the oh, dub version okay. of of this um, cool yeah yeah um, but uh, yeah let's listen to this last track from Burning Spear. Cool. This is red, gold, and green.
just heard burning spears red gold and green and we're going to move on to our third album by rl burnside wish i was in heaven sitting down released in 2000 uh and uh burnside being uh at the time of this release uh, really one of the last surviving uh, uh r- really sort of authentic mississippi delta blues men out there and had been sort of rediscovered um uh, in the 90s, uh, when he was in a, a film, I think it was called Deep Blues or something like that. Um, he was in this film anyway. It was sort of like a documentary and was sort of rediscovered and uh, got signed to recording contracts and started recording with John Spencer and all this stuff in the 90s and then released this album in 2000. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you guys think of R.L. Burnside? I, I love this record. Uh from from the moment that I, I first started listening to it, I mean, I think of of all the records that we we have this week. This is one that I would say. I mean, even if you're not a big blues fan, this is a very good record to have. I mean, like you said, you know, true Delta blues man in in Burnside, basically kind of coming to a point where he has a record made for him with some sort of new sounds and new production uh, uh, styles, but but still in the tradition of a, a Delta Blues, you know, type record. And uh, it's it's like a, a really cool cross between like a, I guess what you would think of as a traditional blues and maybe like an alternative rock record. Um, and and like I said, it it never gets corny in a sense to where sometimes those kind of collaborations really don't work. Um, but this one for me really does. I mean, it it, it has some really interesting sort of uh, keyboard and, and and kind of synthesizer type tricks and and some other things going on that you know I, I really loved. And I mean, throughout this record, I mean, as I listen to it, I mean, there's not a track on it that I that I didn't like. And, uh, and, and in Burnside's, you know, playing and voice, they're all always the anchor at whatever's going on, um, in the track. And I I definitely like this record a lot. Yeah. I I love Burnside's guitar playing. I just (laughs) love his sound and his style. What do you think, Brian? You know, it's funny. I'm I like I like Ariel a lot, uh, but I didn't enjoy this record. I didn't enjoy these tracks. Um, really, I did not. I did not. I don't know why, but it was just not something that got me really, really excited. I think because it didn't have the just unbridled energy that some of his other records had, and in particular, um, one of my favorites was uh, Ass Pocket of Whiskey. Um, you know, that record to me is like low down dirty and raw and this one felt a little it felt polished to me it just didn't have that energy of uh everything was nice everything was well placed everything was well played 
But when I like to see, when I like to listen, I should say to RL, I like to hear him cutting loose and just, you don't know what's going to happen. It could be a train wreck or it could be beautiful. You know, that kind of yeah. right on the, right on the knife's edge. And he, I think that that's, that's what I, I usually take from, uh, from RL's record, but this record didn't do it for me. I was not into it um, as much as his other records. Specifically, if you look at uh, Ass Pocket of Whiskey, I think you'll, if you compare the two, like um, like this, uh, Hard Time Killing Floor, and then you you look at Going Down South, the opening track on Ass Pocket of Whiskey, they are light years apart. It felt like somebody came in and said, Slick Producer came in and said, RL, we're going to make you, you know, um, legit. And just robbed him of his mojo in some ways. Oh, that's that a that's a really interesting uh, take on it because um, one of the reasons I think this album is in this book is that uh, Tom Moon had the sort of exact opposite take that you did. Mm. Um, he thought that ass uh, ass pocket full of whiskey was he just. He just found it. It sounds like he just found it sort of awkward and and it, something that sounds really dated now. It d- doesn't age well. That's what he said in the book. And so I mean, it's it's uh, it's interesting to get the the different the dichotomy. Yeah, the dichotomy. I love that. I love that you don't like this because <laughs> because you know uh, uh, we're uh, often you know really. Uh, speaking highly of these albums and, and, and for the most part I think uh, most of these albums deserve high praise you know but it's nice to get an, another perspective you know um, on it you know so well that's that is fascinating because as you know I don't have the book yet I haven't read it so I'm, I'm probably the the one who's got gonna get called for malpractice on this but um, <laughs> but you know I it, you listen to it if you listen to the record and not just the tracks on I wish I was in heaven sitting down the very second track begins it's uh what's it called let me look it up got messed up if you look at got messed up it starts with a loop it's like boom it's completely produced this whole album right. is completely that, yeah, yeah. produced and if you put on the very first track of as pocket of whiskey i mean there's literally tracks on this on as pocket of whiskey when they ran out of digital tape and it's literally at the end of it and it starts spacing out it's going at the very end of the track they literally let it go that raw and shake them on down i mean some of these great tracks anyway i would submit to our listeners <laughs> for for feedback listen to these two albums yeah. and tell me tell me which one you think is more real right well, you know, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but um, you actually introduced me to R.L. Burnside. Uh, like, I don't, I don't even remember when this was. Uh, I don't remember like what what we were doing, where we were going. But we were in a car. You were driving. We were driving somewhere, and you were like, "You got to hear this record," and you put on "Ass Pocket Full of Whiskey." That was mm-hmm. the first time I heard it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you're right. I mean, and, and it's funny because, um, when I started listening to this record for the show, uh, wish I was in heaven sitting down, that's what I was expecting was, was ass pocket full of whiskey. And so I started listening to the tracks and I'm like, oh, okay, when does he start cussing? <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
yeah. Like, when does it start? And, and I, I, I listen and I listen to more. I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's this track. You know, you're right. It's totally different. Um, and, and you're right. In a lot of ways, um, there is that this, this raw edge or, or mojo, whatever you want to call it, that's missing. I mean, you're right about that. Um, but I don't know. I still, I still enjoyed this album. I have to say, I didn't, I didn't dislike it. Um, but I totally get what you're saying about this versus ass pocket full of whiskey. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard that album, Mitch? No, no, I, I hadn't heard the, the, the previous one. And I, I would, I would say, you know, I, I definitely want to try to compare the two, like, like you guys were talking about. Uh, but I, I still, I, I love this record. I mean, to me, you know, his, his performance to me is, it doesn't seem really diminished at all. I mean, from some other stuff I've heard of his. And like I said, the, some of the some of the production on this record is is kind of weird and, and spooky gives like a, a different atmosphere to a, a blues medium if you will and i mean for some people that that might be not you know what you know is conducive to you know traditional blues but i i'm kind of like you know i i don't i don't care i'm i'm willing to try different things you know on that front where uh, you know someone is has done records a, a certain way you know pretty much the same way most of their life and then starts to kind of tweak it, you know, towards the, you know, latter part of their career. I'm, I'm for that. I mean, you know, if, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But for me, this record, it, it does work. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, let's get to the first track, see what my buddy done. And, um, this is, you know, it's kind of a, like a sort of a low down gritty electric Mississippi Delta blues. It's, uh, you know, a story about a dude that shoots his unfaithful girlfriend or wife, whatever, and then sort of calmly accepts the responsibility for doing so. You know, that's what the lyrics are about, pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it's, hey, it's, hey, it's, hey, it's Hey Joe, he just doesn't go to Mexico. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's that story, I mean, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, let's just check this out. Let's check out this first track from R.L. Burnside. This is See What My Buddy Done. <laughs> He said, I 
way she have treated me I believe she should have been dead But that didn't seem to bother mine I said now you in trouble But that didn't seem to bother mine And we just heard See What My Buddy Done by R.L. Burnside. We're going to move on to Hard Time Killing Floor. Um, this is the opening track. And uh, this is kind of a a slower, um, sort of a, a darker piece, I guess. Um, and, you know, in 1944, uh, Burnside moved to Chicago from Mississippi looking for sort of better opportunities for himself. And while he was there, within a span of one year, uh, his father, two of his brothers, and one of his uncles were all murdered in Chicago. Yeah. That is crazy. And and he actually talks about that in the song. He mm-hmm. sort of he sort of stops singing and, and, and talks about it. Um and you know, the guy had a hardcore life. I mean, oh, yeah. uh for sure. There's was one story where um uh Burnside uh, actually killed a guy. Uh you know, he after in uh in fifty nine he went back to Mississippi and uh, he killed a guy um, at a dice game. He was actually convicted and uh, was in jail for six months. And it, what he said about that, inc- uh, that incident is he said, uh, I didn't mean to kill nobody. I just meant to shoot the son of a bitch in the head. Him dying, <laughs> him dying was between him and the Lord. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, that's hardcore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and see that that's one of the things about this record. I mean, it's it's just him. I mean, you know, he, he to me, he does not lose his edge on this album at all. I mean, these hard times will kill you. I mean, that's that's pretty much, you know, you know, his point of view. You know, I mean, obviously he had to go through some really tough stuff, you know, in his life. And I mean, this is just one of those songs that I, I, I guess this is like a. I hate to say it like this. It's like a postmodern blues album that, you know, the the the, the lyrics and the, the grittiness is all there, but the the production is is definitely it, it's on a whole nother level, you know, where you know they they bring in all these different ideas and, 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 and new things, but the blues is still there. The blues has not gone away. The the nastiness, some of the the, the gritty you know, terrible things that, that he has to talk about. I mean, that that all to me is 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 still very, very present in in his work. And I mean, just some of the, the, the stories that he tells, I mean I, I mean it's just it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, you know, some some horrible horrible, horrible things that, that he had to deal with and had to go through. Yeah. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. Uh Brian, anything you want to say about hard time killing floor? Yeah, I mean, 
this this type of story is gut wrenching, and when you listen to RL sing it, he's he's not screaming, and he's not you know he's just saying it like uh, like a person who's lived it, and uh, it's it's really really honest, and it's really really present, and it has a way of drawing you in, and you you go along with the journey. And um, funny, the, the other thing that it kind of reminded me of, in some ways, just from another album I mentioned earlier, is this Dr. John record. He's got a tune on there called Ice Age. And he's basically talking about the whole inner city, you know, what it is. And uh, he's basically saying, you know, there is no age of innocence, ladies and gents. You know, um, we're all living in an ice age. And he's talking about people going around killing people and and uh and everything else and it's just it's it's the same kind of thing and you know who else it kind of goes back to mitchell it goes back to our good old buddy curtis man it mm-hmm. goes into it goes into curtis's message of all that superfly you know freddie's dead and and all of those great cuts off of superfly it this all has that sort of image of that green and you know who else it kind of reminded me of while i'm thinking about it is james brown when you look at king heroin yeah, i don't know if you guys know that tune oh yeah but oh, yeah. uh Man, that's a great social consciousness tune from from James, you know. And uh, wow, it's 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 all in that tradition. It's all been part of the blues as well. But to hear RL's deep personal story of it, I think that of the two tracks, this one was the most touching by far. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely I, I like this record. I mean, it's 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 different from from anything he'd really kind of done before, in, in in a lot of ways, but still. I, I I could listen to this before I listen to quite a few records. I mean, especially stuff that you, I mean, not to pick on the radio, but I mean, I could listen to this way before I I could sit and listen to stuff that you hear on the radio. I mean, and that that's the thing that's really engaging for me. It's it's just a departure from a lot of that that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. And uh, fine, I'll, I'll pick on the radio for the most part. Radio, <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty terrible. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, just that's just one of those things that you know, it's, that's not hard to to figure out. But you know, it, it's a good, like I said, a departure from from that that sort of you know style of music, so to speak. Yeah. So. All right, man. Well, let's check out our last track from R.L. Burnside. This is "Hard Time Killing Floor." Oh, 
just heard Hard Time, Killing Floor, and we're going to move on to our fourth album of Kate Bush, The Kick Inside, released in 1978. And uh, Kate is our second child prodigy. Um, some, Well, I think a couple of the tracks on this album recorded when she was 16 years old. The rest was recorded when she was 18 years old. Some of the songs on this album were written as early as age 13. Yeah, I saw that. That's wow, um, man. Yeah, I mean, amazing, amazing that she can come out at really, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old, and be sort of this musically mature of an of an artist. It's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, um, Kate is Kate is very to me is very special. There there are not a lot of artists like her in a sense to where, like you said, the whole. The whole child prodigy thing, I mean, that that is that doesn't really even, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg for her. I mean, she she is she's so good and she does so many things. Um Yeah. Where I mean it's it's not just the music. I mean, she was into uh interpretive dance, um, definitely, you know, artistically inclined. Um just really, really well read and and smart and intelligent in that sense, and I mean, like you said, to start so young and and so talented, not a lot of people. The first person that kind of comes to mind is Prince, um, and I mean, Prince and Kate Bush, they're they're really not, you know, musically, they're really not the same, but they they both kind of were almost masters at what they do at a very young age, you know, where Prince was the same way, you know, he produced, you know, his first songs when he was, you know, about 16, 17. And I mean, not just produce them, arrange them and then perform them where, you know, like Kate, I mean, she could sit and write a whole entire piece by herself, you know, every part. Yeah. And, um, well, I think they both have a, a great sort of theatrical sense too. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I would I would totally agree with you where they they come off where you know the both of them like they're almost from another planet where they're doing their thing. When Kate Bush released this record, I guess it was in the late seventies, where kind of like you had the Sex Pistols and you know the the sort of beginning of the disco era, and you know she was totally on her own you know stuff so to speak she was on a, on her own level and um and and brave and bold in a sense to where she didn't really tour a lot she still doesn't i don't know if she's ever toured the united states um which is is amazing to me uh lives a very you know quiet life will put out records and then vanish where she just kind of goes back to you know being kate bush and doesn't do a lot of press, doesn't do a lot of anything, you know, just kind of comes and goes as she pleases. And, and a record label is, 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 you know, more than happy to, you know, sort of appease her. And there, there are not a lot of artists that have that sort of pull, if you will. Uh, and then speaking of Prince again, they, they made a song together on, uh, on the Red Shoes album, um, called Why Should I Love You? Um, and it's it's that's a great song. It's kind of like an aside, but this this record, her first record, is 
it's an amazing first record to yeah. to be 19 yeah. years old and to have all that vision like you said to have you know the 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 artistic slant and and the visual where where the 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 dancing was one thing that also just blew me away her 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 slant for interpretive dance you know in in music like this in this medium was almost unheard of you know and I mean to do it so beautifully and that's another thing about her she is a gorgeous lady even now I mean Kate Bush is she's pretty pretty hot uh-huh. um I would agree. and <laughs> <laughs> just uh just just an amazing amazing talent um I think uh she uh when was when she was coming up uh she was kind of reared on by David Gilmore from Pink Floyd quite a bit where they they kind of you know sort of became friends very very you know at a very young age for her I guess uh, where he, I guess, knew about her in, in the school where she was uh, learning music and, and dance. And um, I think he was sort of, she was sort of like a pupil of his, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he had he had work on this album where he he uh, he plays some and I think produces some. Um, so obviously, you know, David Gilmore had a, had definitely a, you know, a, a high impression of her at, at a very young age uh, to kind of bring her along and, and, and I guess help her get signed to um, to EMI or, or the label she was on. Um, you know, his influence is definitely very important uh, in this sense. But uh, just uh, she's I, I, I love Kate Bush a lot. You know, just just a, an amazing talent. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm sure, sure you 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 probably uh, uh, feel the same, Tony and, and Brian. Just you know, just, um, would you? I mean, you know, what did you think about um, about this record in particular? I guess you know that we're talking about. Uh, for me, I, I, you know, it's funny. I am not a Kate Bush fan at all. Um, and uh, I like her later work. And the first time that I really heard of Kate was on her album Ariel. And um, but before that, it was with um, you know Don't Give Up, the track that she did with Peter Gabriel on the yeah. So album, um, which I thought was wonderful and still do. I think that album is one of the best recorded uh, albums in any genre of all time. That Peter Gabriel record, it's just immaculate. Um, and represents a very high style of production coming out of the UK in that in that time period. But that aside, I was I'm I'm just man. This was like I I'd rather listen to Bette Midler personally. I'd rather look at Kate Bush, but I'd rather listen to Bette Midler. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I think I think that they're both from the same ilk. I think they both possess the same type of qualities. Um, but there's you know sometimes there's just certain types of singers that that don't do it for you and uh, kate is has a such a uh a, a unique voice oh, yeah. that you really need to be in the mood for it and if you are there's nothing better and uh, if you're not it's like nails on a chalkboard and for me most of the time when i listen to her i just feel it's it's almost like it's almost like joni mitchell from the early days you know like blue and and some of the others um but 
Joni has a little bit more of a, an accessibility in Kate, I think, because she's multi-talented and she does the interpretive dance and everything else so well. And she's just really, I, I totally agree with you on this though, Mitchell. She is a very hot woman. She is very beautiful. And I think that that would be part of the allure um, which goes back to I'd, li I'd like to look at Kate Bush, but I'd rather listen to Bette Midler. So that's my summary statement. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, first of all, let me say I'm loving the the uh, different uh, perspectives on the album. I think it's great. I, for me, I love this album. I loved it. Um, for me, it, it sort of falls under that progressive rock umbrella. Um, it's it, you know definitely from a, a little different. Uh, point of view but uh it really for me falls into that uh, very theatrical progressive rock music that was going on in the 70s you know you mentioned with peter gabriel but earlier uh when he was with genesis and um and pink floyd and and other groups um and you know i think a lot of the music is really musically interesting to me there's a lot of sort of twisting and turning harmonic progressions you know that are a kind of uh, unexpected, you know, and uh, I hear where you're coming from, Brian, with her voice. I mean, her voice, like you said, is so unique and idiosyncratic. And, and I think she does have one of those voices that you either love or hate. Yeah, you know? I, I would agree with that. Definitely. Um, I just happen to love it. Um, and, and I really like this, this record. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> It's interesting the the different viewpoints on it, but um, the first uh, track that we're going li to listen to is "Moving," and um, again, like I said, this 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 really just appealed to my progressive rock aesthetic. You know, I've always loved progressive rock. That's one of the genres that um, you know it's like one of my roots genres, I guess. Um, and this really appealed to that side of of me you know it has a lot of these twisting and turning harmonic progressions where she's singing and then her voice will take a, a turn sort of little unexpected turn and um uh yeah i just thought it was cool and, and interesting uh what did you guys think of moving uh it's, it's like you said it, it's just one of those one of those songs like you said it it, it definitely has a, a a progressive kind of rock feel to it where you know all the parts are 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 very intricate and um there's a lot going on in the song with her voice uh her vocal range is is really incredible um i mean she just does so much with it and and like you said it, it's it's kind of one of those things where you know you, you you either love kate or you don't and um um i i've always been impressed you know, first with her voice, um, always very unique. Uh, when people, you know, try to imitate her, it's it's real obvious. And um, her her sensibility for making music, like you said, it's it, there's there's all sorts of twists and turns, and it's it's not your typical flavor uh, when it comes to you know popular music. Um, and then the production. Um, the first time I'd, I'd seen Kate Bush in any way uh, was uh, the the song of Running Up That Hill. Um, I saw the video for that and, and just was like, okay, where is this lady from? And, you know, what what is she about? She, she's not like anybody I've ever seen. 
I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, new wave and ballet and pop music all rolled into one thing. And I mean, I was really blown away by by our whole style. She's she's like one of those type of artists that can take the new and the old and and kind of bring them together. And when I say new, I mean like like new styles like, you know, music that's electronic and, you know, you know, like you said progressive, but then also things that are very old like middle ages old and 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 kind of right, make it work. Right, right. I, I imagine Kate Bush kind of living in a really old beat up castle. And then you go inside, there's all these Moog and ARP synthesizers everywhere and a big grand piano and, you know, a harpsichord. I mean, she she just kind of is like, you know, just, you know, whatever it takes. And, um, you know, uh, the production, the way she presents herself there, there's a video for a song of hers called uh, Babushka, where she has like this, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this this costume with this headdress on it. And she does this dance where she's like kicking, and I mean, I was like, "Where is this lady from?" <laughs> you know, I mean, she's she's Kate Bush is like she's just so unique in the way she she expresses herself, and I think that's what I love about her so much is that she's so good and she's so different. But um, you know, th- this is just a great beginning statement for for what she was about to kind of embark on musically. And um, and like you said, it, this song is just it's a great sort of, uh, you know, taste of, of, of her musical style where, you know, it, it, it kind of changes here and there and the inflection in her voice. And, you know, it, it it's just simply, you know, wonderfully caked, you know, and and like you said, it, it's not for everybody. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people that, you know, from the beginning could not stand her voice. But I, I was just one of those people that I was just impressed with the whole package. I mean, yeah, um, my, my just, wife is one of those. She can't stand her voice. I was listening. Uh, I was listening to this stuff yesterday, you know, and she's right behind me. She's like, oh, man, I just I just can't. I just can't do it. I can't. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny that you guys were mentioning a progressive and, and, you know, like the prog rock. I mean, prog rock from this time period to me is like Bitor the snow dog. You know, well, yeah, that's that's one brush. aspect, sure, yeah, yeah. But but this is like pretentious, uh, ingenue, uh, Brit rock that is heavy <laughs> in synthesizers. And uh, man, just <laughs> it's dude, it's pretentious as hell. But but somehow I don't I don't mind. I still oh, yeah. I still like it. But you're right, it it is. I mean, even like you know, on the second song, the sac the saxophone song starts with all this like whale song and all this stuff and. Oh yeah, it's out there, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, that, and that's that again. That's what I. That's one thing I love about her. She is out there. I mean, she she is definitely willing to take chances on her own stuff, and and sometimes the results are just they're they're just tremendous. Um, and in a sense to where she she's just trying to break new ground. I think you know with a lot of what she does, and 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 does break new ground quite often. You know. And I mean, again, like you said, it's 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 just one of those things where you know, Kate Bush is one of those love or hate artists, you know, which which I totally get that too, where some people just simply are not into her whatsoever, you know. Question: Why would 
who's the author of the book? I forgot. Remind me. Tom Moon. Okay. So I will do my due diligence and actually get a copy of it for the next. <laughs> um, but but it, it's interesting that he would pick this. This is her debut album. She's 16 years old. Has Kate Bush reached her pinnacle at her debut album? I mean, I think that this album, if you listen to Ariel or some of the others, 50 Words for Snow, much better albums than this one. Oh, um, well, yeah. I mean, and that's he, that's the thing with this with this uh, book. I mean, we can you can sit and talk all day about I mean, there's definitely been albums in here where I'm, I had the same reaction. I'm like, why did he pick this album? You know, yeah, when there's yeah. this other album that's so much better, you know, what I mean. And that's that's just you know it's just going to happen. Like no matter who puts the book together, well, I think it's, it's going to happen. I think that's the the latent power, whether it was yeah. uh, Im- implicit or something that's a side effect. But the idea is that it starts dialogue and podcasts, and people start tuning in, and it's like, hey man, let's start <laughs> right. talking about important yeah. things like like real music and yeah. You know. Yeah. So I, I mean, I appreciate. I've I've not bagged on her, and I, and I I respect her, and believe me, I think she's incredibly hot. And um, <laughs> but but I'm I'm just saying that you know I appreciate her musicality, I appreciate her voice, and I think you know in moving in the song itself, you know it's interesting because if you look at the album cover, it's in this sort of. Um, you know, Japanese type font where she's sort of sitting on a Japanese style chair and, and, uh, and striking a very unusual pose. But, um, but the idea is, is that it's either Japanese or Chinese, probably Chinese now that I look at it a little more carefully, but you know, she's actually singing a pentatonic scale. She's singing in the correct mode for the song that is that when she says moving, the actual title word, you know, and it's sort of like, okay, I get that. It's like a little geisha who's who's had a little music career. You know what I mean? That's what it reminds me of. It's like the forbidden concubine that actually has a, a, a new album out. That's what it kind of reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, speak, so, speaking of the cover, yeah. she apparently made six different covers for this record, and apparently some of them were... They were. It was different parts of the world where they released the different covers. Apparently, some of the covers are so rare. Like if you find like the original like pressing of the record, it's worth like tons of money. Um, you know that that's something I didn't know about this record that she pressed like a variety of covers. Apparently, it's like the only time she had ever done that uh, on one of her albums, and uh, just uh, just kind of like another another tidbit of information i guess about this record well let's um, let's play the first track because i i i know uh brian's got something to do and i don't want to run out of time and have have to have him uh jet before we're done so um let's let's listen to this first track uh from kate bush this is moving Be 
And we just heard Moving, and we're going to move on to the second track, the saxophone song. Um, and, uh, y- you know, the the stuff I liked about this was the same sort of, you know, sort of unexpected harmonic shifting. Um, you know, in 75% through this song, it, it hits this this vamp, this sort of instrumental vamp that they just sort of play on and then it sort of goes and then that's how the song ends. I I just thought that was kind of different and interesting way to wrap up the song, you know, Um, to have to end with this just long vamp uh, that, that, you know, everybody's just sort of playing on. Um, And it does open up with the, you know, the whale sound and, you know, all that, but uh, what did what did you guys think of saxophone song? Uh, just a, another way of, of Kate expressing her, I guess your artistic slant, if you will. Like you said, the 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 beginning, middle, and and the end of the song, the way they, the style of it, you know, uh, her sort of mindset for you know setting an atmosphere and 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 feeling for the song, and then the musicality of it. Um, where she's definitely going to always have people around her that can play and that can improvise. And she definitely seems to have a an improvisational spirit about her where they just don't want to kind of get into a, a repetitive nature of things. You know, I mean, she seems to be just one of those people that's that's somewhat spontaneous, you know, in that in that way. And um you know, that's kind of what I get from this song. You know, she she wants to kind of, you know, just let things kind of develop and just kind of, you know, see what happens. I mean, I'm pretty sure they had a, you know, a way where this song started. Like you said, you know, there there's kind of like a, a vamp or, you know, a sort of improvisational period towards the end where they just kind of, you know, just kind of play what they feel. And um, that again, that's that's just one of the things I, I love about her. Uh, I mean, she could stay safe and, and just, you know, kind of let the song, you know, end the way it, it sort of started. But, you know, she just kind of, you know, seems to, you know, totally, you know, get off on this tangent, you know, where they they kind of play it out and, 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 and kind of give you a, a different feel for it. Um, going, going back to what we were talking about with the the records that were chosen as a book, I, when Tom was on the show, he talked about all the different things that he picked for this book and how many things he had to eliminate, you know, which I, I kind of, you know, got a better sense of some of the things that were chosen. Like like you said, I, I would scratch my head and go, well, why did he pick this record? You know, but he he had to take so many things out just to include certain things that would not have been able to be in this book otherwise. Like like Bowie only having one record in, in this book. I mean, I know a lot of people kind of were, you know, wondering about that. Um, but just there are certain styles of music that I guess he felt needed to be in this book that people knew nothing about for the most part, you know, whether it be like, you know, Celtic folk music or you know, you know, Sudanese, African rhythms. I mean, I, I think he was trying to be more inclusive rather than exclude, you know, certain records. Like, for instance, you were talking about Ariel. I, I love that record. 
that's a great record from Kate. Also, uh, the Red Shoes. Uh, uh, Red Shoes has a, a song from Kate called "Moments of Pleasure." I mean, it's it's one of my favorite songs of hers where she really just shows off vocally what she can do. I mean, I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, that song. And I mean, uh, Hounds of Love, obviously, that that's one record, especially in the United States, that I think a lot of people first picked up on Kate with the age of MTV and, and how things were going then. I mean, I know a lot of people, myself included, I mean, that was like the first record of hers where I, I recognized her for who she was. Because I knew about her a little bit before that, but Hounds of Love was like that first record. I mean, to me, that record definitely should be in this book. But for the reasons like I just stated, you know, you know, he just tried to put in, you know, you know, certain snapshots of artists, not necessarily their best work or what they would consider, you know, the most popular work. But anyway, um, you know, back to this song, I, I definitely think that it's just a, a great example of 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 Kate's style, you know, just, uh, you know, at times kind of quirky and, and like, you know, like you guys are saying, so, somewhat pretentious in a way, um, you know, but still, I just, I, I love her. She, you know, and, and the hotness side, even if she wasn't hot, cause trust me, there's so many people now who are quote unquote hot that make music and the music is pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> so, um, I need no. to drink the I need to drink Mitchell's Kool Aid, because uh, because man I mean that's <laughs> the, I, I this one is I mean because I agree with you man I mean it, there's no one's down on your talent you know and, and the great thing about art is that it is a subjective at the end it's a subjective value judgment and you know you either like it or you don't um, I just to me I agree with you Anthony uh, I mean this is like. You know, when you once you hit, it's amazing. This song is only three minutes. I had to, I went back and looked it up. It's three minutes and fifty three seconds long, and it feels like an eternity. <laughs> and um, and I have to say that, like at two minutes and twenty seconds, when our our vamp starts, I call this the Enter the Alan Parsons Project <laughs> because it's all Alan Parsons from the rest of the way out, man. Alan just gets in there and does his, you know, his, his ARP runs and everything else like that. And it just becomes like this, what? And it started with a, what? With this whale song. <laughs> and so, you know, to me, it's just like, <laughs> it makes no sense, man. Yeah. And that, that's, like, that's part of why I think I, that's part of why I love it. <laughs> you know, is that what, that what factor, but you know, just, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. I'm not, and hey, I don't want to be the stick in the mud. I mean, I I like music that just takes chances and doesn't make sense and just goes out yeah, on a yeah. whim. But it's packaged in this massively pretentious way of the new ingenue, the prodigy. This is this is someone who is important that you must listen to of cultural significance. It's done with that kind of hype. And so when you get stuff like this that's just errant and it just goes in and it's like this girl's 16 years old. I wish I could make a record as badass as this if when I was 16 because I certainly well, – there was no chance in hell that I could have done that. Uh, so if you put it on an age equivalent, she's way ahead of the curve. But on, on looking back at it, you know, it's just – she makes better records. She makes better records. And yeah, this one is yeah. – you know, it is. So – Anyway, I. <laughs> but man, whatever you're drinking, Mitchell, I want some because man, I need I need to feel some Kate Bush love on this. Yeah, thing. Kate Kate <laughs> runs. I mean, I can I can run through Kate stuff all day. I mean, just uh, like I said, Hounds of Love, 
um, the dreaming, just, just, she's, she's one of those people I could, I could roll with all day, you know, just, I could, I could go on a road trip with Kate and I'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could too. One one day, now one day, you know, all three of us are going to go on a road trip and we're going to lock the back doors and, uh, put Brian back there and (laughs) blast some Kate Bush. (laughs) <laughs> just make sure you blast this album like i said i like your other albums. This, yeah this, this no it's gonna be this album <laughs> we're gonna put the we're gonna put we're gonna put the vamp on like uh you know infinite repeat but anyway um let's check out this song the last song from kate bush this is the saxophone song We just heard the saxophone song from Kate Bush and we move on to our final album of uh, Renaissance British composer William Byrd. Uh, his uh, harpsichord music, some of his harpsichord music uh, performed by uh, Dutch uh, harpsichordist Gustav Lehnhardt, who, who actually just passed away um, earlier this year. And um, Gustav Lehnhardt was part of a uh, big movement um, that really uh, came up in the mid 20th century of really rediscovering all this music uh, really before J.S. Bach. So rediscovering all this old music that had been either neglected or lost for, you know, hundreds of years. And it wasn't just rediscovering the music. It wasn't just like, you know, like going back and hearing an old CD and rediscovering the music. It was rediscovering uh, the instruments that the music was played on. It was rediscovering how the music was played at the time, which became known as performance practice. So um, rediscovering, you know, how did William Byrd play this music? Because all they had to go on, of course, there was no recordings. So all they had to go on was the music, the sheet music. And in, in, in music, notated music of this time, you know, there's really not a lot of information 
in the music, you know, as to how stylistically, you know, how this stuff is supposed to be played. So that was this huge movement that that happened. And, uh, you know, it was a movement of uh, performers like Gustav and also musicologists. And a lot of times uh, they went hand in hand and uh, would go back and, you know, rediscover, you know, read all these old treatises, you know, old treatises on harpsichord playing, old treatises on counterpoint and, and all this stuff to figure out, you know, how this stuff was played. Um, and, uh, you know, I love William Byrd. He lived from 1540 to 1623, a student of Thomas Tallis, which uh, any of you have watched the uh, Showtime show, The Tudors, uh, Thomas Dallas was a character on that show, but anyway, uh, okay. um, not really historically accurate. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he was a character on the show, but he was a student of Thomas Tallis, um, and really one of the first people, uh, in history to really put emphasis on a solo keyboard as, uh, you know, a, a solo instrument unto itself, you know, not just playing vocal music or accompanying vocal music, on a harpsichord, but actually treating the keyboard as, you know, a solo instrument, as an instrument unto itself. That's so, really uh, hard to imagine. I, I'm I'm still I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that where this is like some of the first music made for a piano on a solo arrangement. I mean that's Yeah. I mean, wow. And it's know, also, you know, it's, important I mentioned this when we were talking about Bach, but this is way way before the piano right so the piano as we know it um today in the, in the in the uh, modern form that it is today you know wouldn't exist for another i don't know 250 275 years okay um so the the keyboard instruments that he had at the time were harpsichords clavichords um, which were in in england were called virginals and uh organs like early organs and that that's what he had that's what he played, you know, were these instruments. There was no piano. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Brian, what do you think of William Byrd? Well, I'm with you. Um, I think you and I both share the same kind of passion for this uh, renaissance, you know, early Baroque transitional time period. And, um, you know, I, I love it. I love the early Notre Dame organum you know, from um, oh, yeah. Leonin and Periton and, and everything else. And, and this is in that it's, it's amazing how diverse that uh, this music is because it certainly is concerned with use of secondary dominance and modulation. And, you know, you're dealing with a different tuning system at the time as well, which it's, you know, not, not equal tone tempered that we use today where everything's just equally out of tune um, you know, and, and by a lot of people, we, we do perfect fifths very well for the non, you know, for our listeners who may not know that, but the, the fifths, the perfect fifth sounds very much in tune to us, but thirds, but way they're made in their inversions, minor thirds, major thirds, major sixth, minor sixth, you know, they are actually out of tune. Uh, they're, they're really sharp depending upon the way you want to think about it. It's not a pure third, which a, a vocalist would naturally do when a choir sings together. Right. Um, so, um, so if any of you ever want to do an experiment, you know, if you get three people in a room that can hold pitch and are pretty good, what you want to do is, is you want to play a root and you play a fifth. So play the note C on the piano and play a note G and then have somebody sing the major third in the middle. And when it sounds right, 
have that person hold their pitch and go play the E on the piano and you'll hear them flat. So um, the vocalist will be flat. So um, so that's sort of the way it goes. But this is, I love hearing it. Uh, I loved this CD. I thought it was uh, wonderful. It was a great journey. All of them were just really, really uh, engaging. They had so many different uh, twists and turns and they still have that wonderful characteristic of music from this period which is basically non-common practice era so you have cadential formula that are based off of leading tones that don't necessarily revolve around a tonic and uh, I love that I love that early um, it's not even modal you know what I mean it's modal but it's not because it cadences in a way it cadences in a way that we wouldn't classify it as modal at least by our contemporary standards but um, what a lovely piece and and I have to say hats off to Gustav Lanhart to go through and make the journey to to do this I mean this is a Herculean feat at best and he is just nailing it. So um, I'm. I was really. This is a true joy. Yeah, true joy. I mean, it's like it's it's kind of like an archaeologist, you know, finding uh, like a really rudimentary blueprints for like a building that was destroyed two thousand years ago and trying to recreate that building exactly the way it was. Um, using the same tools. Using the same. Yeah, exactly. Using the same tools. And um, really not being quite sure exactly what the building looked like, you know, how the building was painted, what was on the building, what was in the building, what the building was used for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And this is, you know, this is what uh, Lanehart has done with this music. And, you know, a little about the tonality, what you were talking about, Brian. I mean, this is for the listener, you know, um, the way music works, the way tonal music works was pretty much codified, you know, by the time Bach was alive and certainly when Mozart and Beethoven and all these people were writing music, that system of tonality of how you write music, how music works, was solidified. It was codified. This represents a time when William Byrd was alive before that system was codified. So it's almost kind of like the the Wild West of tonality, you know. Um, you get all these 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 things that happen in the music that wouldn't really happen later, you know, because uh, this system, you know, how music work hadn't really been set in stone yet. And uh, these these people like William Byrd were sort of musical pioneers in that way. Um, but uh, let's start you know, with this. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting because if you think about when Rameau did his Treatise of Harmony, which if I remember right, it was 1729. Um, you know, you're talking about music that's roughly 200 years before, and the the cadential formula. Like for, for those of you who are listening, you know, they didn't think in vertical dimensions the way we do, which is we stack tones on top of each other, generate chords from that, and then we think, oh, it's a one four five chord, like you know, roll over Beethoven or whatever. Um, they didn't think that way. They thought on a purely linear scale. And it was about uh, the resolution of um, what they would think of as leading tones or activated tones. And to our ears, the cadential formulas sound a bit arcane just from cultural inexposure. But I absolutely love this period, as do you. And I think that, um, you know, it's just, it's so fascinating because there's these twists and turns. You go, wow, yep, that's. That's characteristic, but man, I just don't hear it. And it and it's weird. It's like you have to almost sort of 
get into the mode. It's a lot like reading uh, Christopher Marlowe or Shakespeare or some other great writer from Elizabethan era that has that vaulted language. Yeah, and it's yeah. and it's and it takes you a while to wrap your head around it. And then once you do, it's very rewarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's check out this first track, um, Galliard. And uh, Galliard was a dance, so you know, is a, a dance of the time. And uh, this was very common in the music of the time, where they would take uh, these rhythmic meters and characteristics of dances, popular dances like Galliards and Pavans and and uh, uh, Almonds and and things like this, and write music, you know, uh, in these rhythmic meters. Um, so this is one of those Galliard. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have anything to say about this Galliard? Oh no, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> let's just let's just play it so people just sort of can hear uh, can hear this okay absolutely alright so this is uh, a galliard of William Byrd uh, played by Gustav Lanehard And that was Galliard of William Byrd. And, and you know, um, he had many, many pieces called Galliards. This is just one of his Galliards. Um, we're going to move on to the piece. Now, it's listed as Rowland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D. Uh, sorry, L-A-N-D, Rowland. Um, I suspect this is a typo, uh, and it's supposed to say Doland, D-O-W-L-A-N-D, referring to John Dolan, the, the contemporary composer who was a lutenist. And this piece, I mean, I immediately recognized it. It's My Lord Willoughby's Welcome Home. This is uh, mm. um, a piece of, I, I'm pretty sure it's a piece of John Dowlin, but the, the thing about this music from this time is composers would, would continually borrow from each other and, and arrange each other's music. And I know there's a, a lot of arrangements that William Byrd did for the keyboard of Dowland's uh, famous song, uh, his lacrime mm-hmm. song, but it's not attributed to Dowland. So it'll just say William Byrd lacrime, but it's Dowland's lacrime. You know, this happened all the way up into Bach's time. You know, Bach would uh, uh, arrange Vivaldi concertos, 
You know, take like a, a concerto of Vivaldi for four violins, arrange it for four harpsichords, and it would say J.S. Bach concerto for four harpsichords, you know, and it would take the musicologists, <laughs> you know, take them to figure out, okay, this is an a, a arrangement of Vivaldi. And so this was a common practice, you know, back then. It wasn't like they were just stealing from each other because they couldn't think of anything. It was just just how it was done. But yeah, this is, uh, if you want to hear a different version of this uh, played on lute, um, this is John Dowland's My Lord Willoughby's Welcome Home, basically. Um, I don't know. Uh, Brian, do you have anything You know, to say? it's interesting because there's there's three things. That, yeah, I think, uh, I think there's just a couple of interesting points. Um, one is, you know, there wasn't a copyright back in the day, so you could freely uh, set another melodic um, based material from another composer um, and not have any repercussions, kind of like today in some ways. Um, and then you could also, uh, the other thing that's interesting is, is that it's very much akin to jazz where um, because you would have some type of normalcy within the listeners that, would, that they would recognize the fact that you are using a well-known melody you can actually understand the artistry of the composer a little bit and how they set it and get to a deeper level because you're using familiar material. And of course that's the standard with, you know, jazz. And, and I know that, you know, Tony, you and I have talked a lot about it in the past and I still feel this way that, you know, jazz is sort of in these two camps where there's the, the modern progressives and then there's the preservationists. Oh yeah. And, um, but nevertheless, you know, on most contemporary jazz albums, there's always a standard, you know, there will never be another you or Stella by starlight or autumn leaves. And I mean, if for, for those of you who are Keith Jarrett fans, since we're talking about keyboard music, you know, how many times has Keith Jarrett done, uh, my romance someday my prince will come and autumn leaves i mean there's probably at least a half a dozen versions and each time he does something different with it and i think because of you're using that set material it has this wonderful um insight it gives you this wonderful insight into understanding how he's treating the melody is he putting it in the left hand is it in the middle part of the register is it in the upper register is it in syncopation and all of those types of things and so because you are uh, culturally literate with that or knowledgeable of that that melody you could appreciate the artistry and i think that that that's one of the things that stands out here the other thing is is an interesting transcription from lute music into keyboard music Right. So, right. you know, you, you've got that going on as well, which I think is a very valid thing to do, which we do all the time. I mean, how many times did we rack our brains, you know, playing the, the Bartok violins and duos, you know, together? And then, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, or, or when, remember when we set the Art of Fugue for our little, uh, our, our Y2K ensemble? We oh, had yeah, a, of course. Yeah. Yeah, we were borrowing that. So here we are again, going into keyboard-based literature and, and putting it in for two guitars, cello, and bass. So, you know, we... Uh, well, we, we, did, uh, we did a music of this time where we did the D- Dowland um, Come Heavy Sleep. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. For that ensemble. But, um, but uh, oh, what was I going to say? I lost it. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, this is a, a really interesting tune. That's really interesting what you bring up you know about how you can appreciate you know what an artist does with this stuff you know if you know this sort of original tune i guess um but uh yeah let's check this out this is i think it's supposed to say <laughs> dolan <laughs> of uh of uh william bird played by Gustave lanehard 
And we just heard Doland uh, by William Byrd. And that is going to do it for this episode of 1000 Recordings. Now, I wanted to do one other thing before we go. And that is uh, Brian has just released a new album um, that he mentioned at the beginning of the show. And what I want to do is play uh, an excerpt from a track uh, from his new album so you guys can check it out. And cool. Brian, uh, we're going to play an excerpt uh, from Southern Amen. Is that right? Yeah, that's the that's the track on there, uh, Southern Amen. Yeah. And yeah, man, thanks so much for doing that. I'm so appreciative. That's really cool to do oh yeah absolutely i mean uh do you want to say a few things about southern amen or the album well yeah the uh the album is basically um a tribute to stacks muscle shoals and um and sun it's it's a it's sort of a new take on southern culture um it's it's basically saying you know we're not all rednecks with trailer hitches on our trans ams um <laughs> you know we we basically uh you know there's there's actually a good part of uh, southern culture um where we all work together and uh, realize this this community and it's a vibrant community and and it has a, a very complicated past but we move forward and so this album is dedicated to redefining that and uh, and moving forward into the future uh, but still you know paying tribute to those great records um by black and white artists in the south and um it's it's very referential to that type of culture so that's what the record's really about awesome um well let's hear it let's hear an, an excerpt from uh this is from uh do you want to introduce it uh, uh sure um this is the uh this is a single off of the record um and depending upon where you live, you will probably you will have the opportunity to hear it on your radio. Um, if you listen to radio, which I don't, uh, but <laughs> but if you but if you do, you know it, it's out there. It's 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 on the charts uh, on the Americana charts. But it's called Southern Amen, and and uh, it's it's just about that that idea. It's kind of a um, you know it's my take of not trying to get uh, Sweet Home Alabama played every time you go into a, a redneck bar. I, I don't need to hear that anymore in my life. You know, so this is like, let's let's do something new. <laughs> so that's what this is. It's my feeble attempt at trying to, to do something new. <laughs> All right. Okay. So let's hear it. Southern Amen. I take a trip down Lit Valley Drive. Lake Poncho train gleaming in the moonlight. A Cajun girl swinging in the King Tut saloon. There's cornmeal on the dance floor, and I really You taste the kisses, sweet as molasses.
Bibles on the dashboard Ain't nothing wrong with praising the Lord From sacred harp singers to tribe rub and barbecue We take our time rolling in the cuts And that was Southern Amen by Brian Clark and the New Lyceum Players, right? Yeah. And uh, um, are you guys, uh, you said, you mentioned you're um, playing in Houston. I can't remember if you mentioned that on or off the air. Uh, I think we're we're off the air. Okay. Yeah, we were off, yeah. Um, But I'll be be back in Texas. um, You know, I leave on Wednesday and and we do some dates in uh, Dallas and then go down to Austin for, for two dates in Austin. And I think we're going to Houston for a date, so... And then we'll be back in town, and I'll be playing with another girl um, as well named Bonnie Bishop, who actually has a cut on Bonnie Raitt's new album. Uh, so, in fact, I'm about to leave here in about 10 minutes to go do a gig with her. We do a gospel revival uh, the last Sunday of every month um, in Nashville. So we got a lot of killer band, and i got to start packing all my gear up and head out to that gig. All right, man. Well, we appreciate you coming on. It was, uh, <laughs> it was great and fun. Uh, to have you on and definitely look forward to having you on again in the future. Um, it was an honor. Uh, and let me know whenever you would like to have me back. Uh, and I'll be happy to make that happen. It'd be a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, um, uh, yeah, we thank you for coming on. And, uh, if you need to go, you can go, we need to wrap up the show here, but you can, you can hang out when we wrap up or if you need to go, you can go. That's totally cool. Um, and uh yeah awesome well guys it was a pleasure and um yeah i'll pack up i need to leave in about 15 minutes so um i need to get everything ready but great pleasure and good to to uh meet you via skype mitchell and um same here man good talking lots of fun yeah man look forward to it all right man later all right talk to you later all right awesome yeah that, that was great um, oh yeah having brian on <clears throat> and we will definitely have him on again um uh in a future episode so uh you know watch for that um <clears throat> if you'd like to send us an email you can do so at 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can join us on facebook you can join us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000 rp and you can go to our website where we have links to uh, all the albums that we play and uh, uh, as well as information about sponsoring the show and you can go there and look at that at 1000rp.blogspot.com and uh, we actually have a couple of new five star reviews to read Wow! <clears throat> from, from iTunes um, do you want me to read those or please please sir okay <clears throat> excuse me my voice is hold on I'm going to take a drink <laughs> go ahead <laughs> mm. <clears throat> okay so the first five star review comes from water rabbit and uh water rabbit says i found the 1000 recordings book that led me to this podcast first let me say that both are very valuable tools for expanding your musical knowledge my listening has been mostly in one or two types of music and i wanted to learn about music i was not familiar with this is so much better than just randomly buying music and hoping you get something you like. The podcast is a great way not only to hear examples of a very diverse library, 
but the narrators give their personal opinions of each selection and the history behind the music. This gives someone like myself a much deeper understanding why some selections are more important or, or are important in musical history. Keep in mind that all kinds of music are discussed, so there may be parts that uh, are not of interest to you. Also, I find that if I write down an artist or song and research it, almost always I find more music that I like during uh, during 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 my research. Blah. I highly recommend this podcast and the 1000 Recordings book to anyone who wants to learn more about all the great music in our world. Enjoy Joseph W. A.K. Water Rabbit, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, USA, 100% Cape Cod Media King approved, yo! <laughs> I threw in the yo, but... Um, so, uh, thanks, Water Rabbit. That's an awesome uh, review. And uh, we've got another one by Caroline Wood. And she said, uh, I bought the Tom Moon book a while back and have looked at it here and there, but just haven't started to really explore until recently. I was super excited to see this link to this podcast on his website and downloaded all the past episodes to listen to while I was on vacation last week. I was able to get through nine episodes and I learned something new with each podcast. Thanks, guys. So thank you, Caroline. Thank um, you. Thank you both. Both of those reviews. I th- That's great because I, I mean, that, that pretty much puts it in a nutshell. I mean, at as you go through this book, you know, you'll go, oh, well, wait a minute, look at that. I, there's something I didn't know about, you know, and that's the whole point of this. I mean, it's just the, the discovery for me, the discovery aspect where, you know, I, I love getting into new music that ne- that may not necessarily be brand new. You know, it could be something that came out 40 years ago or, you know, 400 years ago. I mean, but it's just it's just something that I didn't know about, you know, and it's, yeah, yeah. you know, that's that's the great thing about sitting and doing this, you know, to where, you know, you may not know because, I mean, you know, the, the harpsichord record is it was something that was totally new to me, even though I've listened to, you know, harpsichord music before. And I mean, it's just a, a great way to kind of get, you know, acquainted with something that that I am not familiar with on on whatever level. And, uh, you know, that that's what this is. That's why we do this. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was the, the, the reason why I started the podcast. That was the whole reason was just to hear an excuse to hear everything in this book and research it and talk about it. That was it. So, yeah. 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 So thanks for those reviews. Um, and uh, if you would like to head over to iTunes and leave us a five star or any star review, uh, yeah. We will read it on the air, and that will really help us a lot in uh, getting the podcast out to more listeners. Um, so if you have a minute, please head over to iTunes and uh, leave us a rating and a review, and we will appreciate it very much. Um, so on the next show, we're going to start with The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. Um, then we're going to listen to an album of David Byrne and Brian Eno, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. That would be fun. Uh, then we're going to move on to Cafe Tacuba, uh, Mexican group, uh, Cuatro Caminos. Uh, then the uh, album Uri Kane, Erlicht Primal Light. And then finally, uh, uh, Camarón de, Isla, de la Isla, La Leyenda del Tiempo, uh, a Spanish group, which I'm the not... The Flamenco Sergeant Pepper is what the book says. The fl- oh, wow. Flamenco Sergeant Pepper. Okay, well... Look forward to hearing that. Um, yeah. So until then, uh, it was great to be back. It is, um, dude. It, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Cool. But um, yeah, it was a fun episode. Thanks again to Brian Clark, and we will definitely see him again on a future episode. And uh, yeah, thank thanks again to you, Mitch. Thank you, sir. Uh, great to to get back uh, to work, um, uh, despite all the sort of technical difficulties that I had when you when you have a laptop die suddenly. That's always fun, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So, or have and, someone drop it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then not tell you that they dropped it until maybe about 15, 10 minutes before you start podcasting and recording. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. Uh, <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, life goes cool. on. Yep, yep. All right, man. Well, until next time, we'll t- check out some uh, cool music next week. And uh, until then, I'll see you later. All right, bye, everybody.